In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman, for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Raw Deal. I wish I could say Tom Lear's song has less significance today than it did yesterday or the day before. But the situation appears to be precisely the opposite. We have the U.S. about to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, Trump says, alarming Middle East leaders. It's not not as though he didn't know. This article was published in the New York Times on the 5th of December, which was, of course, Tuesday. Now we have, of course, the concerns being expressed even on the 6th before he'd actually made made the declaration an Israeli, if Trump declares Jerusalem capital of Israel, chaos will reign from Robert Fisk. An Israeli dream might come true if Trump declares Jerusalem the capital, but so will an Arab nightmare. Robert Fisk, early in the morning of December 6th. Amid three catastrophic Middle Eastern wars, it would be difficult to imagine anything more provocative, dangerous, or just plain insane than for the Americans to move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Yet that is just what Donald Trump is this week thinking of doing. In a way, we should have expected this. Mad presidents do mad things. But there is no one in the White House? Is there no one in the White House able to restrain him, not even Jared Kushner, who is supposed to be Trump's Middle East hand, or is Kushner too bound up in his latest scandal, just revealed by Newsweek? that he failed to disclose his co-directorship of a foundation funding illegal Jewish colonies in the West Bank when he filed financial records with the Office of Government Ethics this year to speak out? For it's not that the embassy itself is just a symbolic move. It means that the United States would acknowledge that the city of Jerusalem, sacred to Muslims, Jews, and Christians, is the capital of the Israeli state and that the Palestinians can never share it. The slovenly peace process abandoned by Israelis and by the Palestinians and then by Americans would be shown to be nothing more than a dream, one that has now come to an abrupt end. Trump does it on December 6th, which just happens to be my birthday, alas. He calls for the Jerusalem plan to step forward as a step toward peace, but it puts the Middle East on the edge. And I mean, it is a stunning thing for him to have done. Jerusalem, this is to give the Trump version of events. Palestinians burned photos of President Trump in Gaza. The walls of the old city were illuminated with the American and Israeli flags on Wednesday as Trump made good on his campaign pledge to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. 
in a much-anticipated speech from the White House, Mr. Trump argued that it was the right thing to do to acknowledge the reality that Jerusalem is the seat of Israel's government. Decades of avoiding that fact, he said, has done little to resolve the protracted feud between Israelis and Palestinians. It would be folly to assume that repeating the exact same formula would bring uh, would now produce a different or better result, Mr. Trump declared. Recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, he said, is a long overdue step to advance the peace process. Mr. Trump said the United States still wanted a negotiated peace agreement and would support a two-state solution if agreed to by both sides, and that he was not seeking to dictate the boundaries of Israeli sovereignty in the fiercely contested holy city. There will, of course, be disagreement and dissent regarding this announcement, the president said. He appealed for calm, for moderation, and for the voices of tolerance to prevail over the purveyors of hate. But Trump makes himself look like a complete and total lunatic detached from reality. Here is the most sanguine or positive interpretation of what has just happened from Justin Ramondo of antiwar.com. The pundits are up in arms over President Trump's announcement that he intends to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And on the eve of the supposed renewal of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, what they think, they cry, can he be thinking? Is he crazy? Of course he is. Are we to be spared nothing? Of course we aren't. As Trump would put it, it's fake news because recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel is a concept without content. Congress has already voted on several occasions over the years to proclaim such recognition and to demand that the United uh, 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 U.S. Embassy be moved there from Tel Aviv. Every president since Reagan has vowed to do precisely that and wound up leaving the embassy right where it is. Well, Trump will prove to be no exception, and here's why. President Trump will recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital on Wednesday while also delaying moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to the Holy City, officials said. Though Trump will not relocate the embassy anytime soon, one White House official told reporters it could take years. The president still intends to fulfill that promise made early in his administration. Senior administration officials called Trump's expected recognition of Jerusalem, an affirmation of reality, both historical and current, pointing out that the city is already home to Israel's Parliament's Supreme Court and other government sites. What in the real actual world will change as a result of the this empty resolution? The answer, according to Justin Ramondo, is nothing. He continues, the same people who scoffed at the very idea that Trump could ever be the GOP nominee and then confidently foretold Hillary Clinton's victory, have predicted disaster at every turn in the road to the end of the first year of his presidency. Remember how his election meant an inevitable war with China? The doomsayers couldn't explain his recent love fest with Xi Jinping, so they just ignored it and moved on to the next blood-curdling and equally wrong prognostication, war with North Korea. Trump's fire and fury rhetoric was so incandescently hot that his words alone would ignite a war on the Korean Peninsula. Except it hasn't happened, and it isn't going to happen, for the same reason the Korean stalemate has persisted since 1953. 
for both sides, the price of aggression is too high. War means millions dead and the Korean Peninsula rendered virtually uninhabitable. And oh, don't forget the war with Iran that was supposed to be already in progress by this time because Trump was going to rip up the Iran deal. Except that didn't happen either. Despite the election year rhetoric, the solemn vows that the bad, very bad deal, the worst deal in our history, folks, the absolute worst, was going to be rectified and even nullified upon taking office. Uh, Trump simply kicked the OSHA over to Congress, will be kept in reserve for the Israel lobby to exploit at their convenience. In any case, the Iran deal is intact and is very likely to remain so the longer the issue sits on the back burner. Other world leaders, however, did not share that same uh, cautiously optimistic attitude. International leaders react to Trump's Jerusalem move. President Donald Trump announced recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital on Wednesday, triggering immediate condemnation and concern from leaders in the Middle East and around the world. In a statement from the White House, the president defended his decision as nothing more or less than a recognition of reality. Jerusalem's status has been contested for a millennia. It's old city home to the religious sites of Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Both Israelis and Palestinians claim the city as their spiritual capital. And these uh, tensions have helped to keep the issues alive and, 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 and inhibit resolution of the conflict. Here are a handful of reactions from players involved in this issue. Hamas, a war declaration. Hamas political leader Eshmael Haniah called for a new intifada or uprising in the face of Israel, labeling Trump's move a, quote, more war declaration against Palestinians. The announcement prompted riots in the streets of Gaza, where demonstrators burned tires and set fires to pictures of the U.S. president. This decision has killed the peace process, has killed the Oslo Accord, has killed the settlement process, Hanaya said, describing it as, quote, an aggression, a declaration of war on us, on the best Muslim and Christian shrines in the heart of Palestine, Jerusalem. The Gaza-based Sunni militant political group which the U.S. designates a terror organization, is long held to a policy of refusing to recognize Israel's existence as a state. Here's another, Palestinian Authority. U.S. can no longer be mediator in peace process. Palestinian Authority President uh, Ahmoud Abbas lambasted Trump's recognition of Jerusalem, saying he refused to acknowledge it and that this marked the end of America's role as mediator in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Prior to Trump's official announcement, Abbas warned of the dangerous consequences such a decision would have to the peace process and to the peace, security, and stability of the region and of the world. This could fuel terrorism, says Jordan's King Abdullah. Jordan's King Abdullah told the American president his decision would have dangerous repercussions on the stability and security of the region, according to a palace statement. There is no alternative to a two-state solution, and Jerusalem is key to any peace agreement, Abdullah later said, from the Turkish capital of Ankara. Jordan is home to more than two million Palestinian refugees. Saudi Arabia's royal court, disappointment. Trump's actions, quote, exemplify a drastic regression in the efforts to move the peace process forward. 
It is a shift away from the United States' historically impartial position with regard to the issue of Jerusalem. Saudi Arabia's royal court said in a statement, adding that it will further complicate the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Jerusalem's decision undermines chances for peace, says Egypt Sisi. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi stressed the necessity of not complicating the state of the region by taking measures that would undermine the chances for peace in the Middle East. The country of 95 million is one of only three Arab League states recognizing Israel's right to exist as a state. Surprise, surprise. Israel's Netanyahu, forever grateful. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu publicly praised the Trump administration's move. Thank you, President Trump, for today's historic decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The Jewish people and the Jewish state will be forever grateful, Netanyahu said. The recognition, he added, reflects the president's commitment to an ancient but enduring truth, to fulfill his promises and to advancing peace. There is no peace that doesn't include Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So saith Bibi Netanyahu. Trump was doing it in the face of serious criticism and opposition from his own highest-ranking administration members. Tillerson, Mattis, warned Trump against embassy move. President insisted on his Jerusalem moment, but the impact will be forever. Donald Trump's announcement that the U.S. now recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and will eventually move its embassy there might well be the most predictable decision of an otherwise unpredictable presidency. Trump made his Jerusalem promise back in March of 2016 during an address he gave to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, IPAC. It was an obvious attempt to convince skeptical Jewish leaders of his uncompromising support for Israel. But it's not only that Trump was intent to fulfill a campaign promise. The Jerusalem Initiative has been in the works since the day he took office, was coordinated with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and is supported by influential voices in the administration, including Vice President Mike Pence, son-in-law Jared Kushner, Middle East envoy and former Trump Organization lawyer Jason Greenblatt, and CIA Director Mike Pompeo. The decision was all but finalized, the American conservative has learned, during a late November meeting of Trump's foreign policy advisors at the White House. The November confab was well underway when Trump arrived to press his case. While the president was only expected to stay in the meeting for 15 to 20 minutes, he ended up staying for a full hour. Trump, uh, the, the American conservative was told by a senior Pentagon officer with knowledge of the meeting, was adamant about keeping his campaign pledge, was brought up short by warnings issued by Defense Secretary James Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Both officials argued that the move would endanger American diplomats serving in the region, undermine the administration's efforts to revive the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, and result in condemnations from both Arab countries and America's most important allies in Europe. Trump could expect almost no support in the international community. America would stand alone with Israel. Trump listened closely to the warnings over the next hour. It was a very intense exchange. 
American conservative was told by the senior Pentagon official, but it certainly wasn't heeded. But at the end of the discussion, the president said that he would go ahead with his decision, despite the difficulties it might cause. He also acknowledged concerns about possible threats to U.S. diplomats and said he would dampen them by repeating U.S. assurances that it was committed to a two-state solution. More so, he argued, the U.S. did not need to move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem immediately, which would serve as a further reassurance. Even so, Wednesday's announcement about Jerusalem was tortured by a number of inherent contradictions, including the most prominent of all, the contention that the decision was not only in the best interests of the United States, but would actually enhance the prospects of a two-state solution and energize a peace process. Quote, we are not taking a position on any final status issues, Trump added, including the specific boundaries of Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem or the resolution of contested borders. Those questions are up to the parties involved. The decision is in the best interests of the United States of America in the pursuit of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. In fact, it seems unlikely that this unseemly sleight of hand of making deep, dubious claims will allow Arab fears that the U.S. continues to be Israel's lawyer, to use a term coined by former U.S. Middle East negotiator Aaron David Miller. Now it has also become Israel's realtor. This seems not to become uh, to bother the president, who is known for you know playing a bit fast and loose, seems to me. The strategy is almost perverse in its beauty and was on full display among administration officials intent on selling the president's Jerusalem initiative in the wake of his address. The Trump announcement, as one of them argued, doesn't undermine the peace process, not because there isn't one, as everyone suspects, but because there is and it's going swimmingly. Trump, the official added was actually anxious to make Wednesday's announcement because he was so encouraged by the progress made on the Israeli-Palestinian peace issue by Jared Kushner and his team. I know a lot of that progress isn't visible, as this official was oversaying to a prominent TV reporter, but it's partly because that progress is not visible that they've been able to make so much. Domestically, it would seem Trump has little to worry about. The Democrats have spent the last 70 years, since 1948, fawning over Israel and defending it, while the Republicans' Christian evangelical base is in full-throated support of the embassy move. Moreover, the GOP has been desperate to break into what was once a Democrat-only monopoly on Jewish-American political funding and Jewish votes. In this sense, Mr. Trump's Jerusalem announcement can be seen as a kind of coming-out power a celebration that the monopoly has been broken, that the Republicans have arrived. Then, too, the bedrock of progressivism of American Jews who supported any number of progressive movements over the last decades has been overawed by concern that Israel can best be defended by backing pro-military conservative interventions in the entire region. And so it is that President that Trump's Jerusalem announcement might well be seen as a significant and decisive victory for Israel, for the Republican Party, and for those Jewish Americans who have had to choose between their progressive ideals and their support for a nation that is anything but. The result is stark, discomforting, 
it may be the controversy will fade, that the Arab world will remain quiet, that the Trump administration will use the Jerusalem decision as a springboard to launch a creative and fair resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that Gerald Kushner will succeed where George Mitchell did not. But that does not seem likely. Rather, it's probable that the governments of Europe will remember the real import of this decision, that when asked to stand with our European allies and Arab friends, we chose Israel instead. Pay attention. This is what it feels like to live in a nation whose moment has passed. I'm afraid that that is very much the situation. I I want to explain a lot about what's going on here because it's such a contravention not only of 70 years of American foreign policy, but of the solemn agreements within which the state of Israel was created. In 1947, the United Nations adopted a partition plan for Palestine recommending the creation of independent Arab and Jewish states in an internationalized Jerusalem. The plan was accepted by the Jewish Agency for Palestine, but rejected by Arab leaders. The following year, the Jewish Agency declared the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel to be known as the State of Israel. Israel has fought several wars with neighboring Arab states in the course of which it has occupied territories, including the West Bank, Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip, still considered occupied after the 2005 disengagement. It extended its laws to the Golan Heights and East Jerusalem, but not the West Bank. Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories is the world's longest military occupation in modern times. Efforts to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have not resulted in peace. However, peace treaties between both Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan have successfully been implemented. Upon independence in 1948, the country formally adopted the name State of Israel. There is more to be said where I shall continue this discussion after the break. But I can assure you, this is not good. In my opinion, this decision by Donald Trump is going to have catastrophic consequences and discredit the United States in relation to having any role with regard to the conduct of foreign policy, obviously and most significantly in relation to the Middle East. We have squandered any moral authority we may have had to be objective and neutral arbitrators of an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. Mark my word. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman, for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book 
with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. Just to demonstrate that uh, not all Jews are happy about the situation here, that Bibi Netanyahu represents an extremist group, the Lukid Party in Israel, which is among the most radical to ever occupy that office, with the exception perhaps of Menachem Begin and others of his ilk, where he was a participant in the attack on the King David Hotel in 1946, where a group of Ergun terrorists dressed as Arabs blew up the hotel and killed some 84 uh, uh, British who who were at the hotel in their effort to drive uh, 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 the British out of Palestine, uh, where terrorism has been a, a regular part of Israel's practice around the world again and again and again. But not all Jews are sympathetic or supportive of those techniques. Here, Rabbi Mer- Michael Lerner, the editor of Tikkun magazine, the voice of liberal and progressive Jews, issued the following statement on December 6th yesterday. Of course, Jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel, but it is also the capital of the state of Palestine, currently occupied by the Israeli army and unable to exercise its sovereignty in the Arab parts of Jerusalem that will someday be an integral part of the Palestinian state. To ignore this fact and extend play to the most reactionary elements of the Israeli people, and of the Jewish people around the world is to not only be ignorant and arrogant, but also terribly destructive to the possibility of the U.S. playing a constructive role in bringing an end to the Israeli-Palestinian struggle. Those of us American Jews who seek an end to that struggle recognize that a lasting peace with justice for both sides can only be achieved through a new spirit of generosity and repentance from both sides. Instead, by clumsily and stupidly wading into this struggle and endorsing Israel's side on one of the central issues of the struggle, namely the future status of Jerusalem, Trump weakens the hands of those in the Palestinian world who want to achieve reconciliation with Israel and strengthens the hands of the Palestinian who has given up on achieving peace through negotiations. Trump has therefore given a gift to Hamas just as he has given a gift to the Israeli settlers and extremists whose goal is to achieve ethnic cleansing by making life intolerable for Palestinians both within Israel's pre-1967 borders and inside the West Bank, while simultaneously weakening the Israeli peace camp. To those of us who seek peace, there is no question that the old city of Jerusalem does not belong to any one religion or people. It is a holy site for Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and should eventually become an international city that is open to all, just I add, as the United Nations initially proclaimed. West Jerusalem is already appropriately the location of the Knesset and major parts of the government of Israel. East Jerusalem, long the spiritual center of the Palestinian state, must overcome its uh, official uh, capital must become its official capital as soon as Israel is willing to let that happen or as soon as the international community can use whatever means are at its disposal to make that happen. 
In the meanwhile, Trump has pushed that date further into the future, thereby putting Israel and Palestine both into danger of renewed violence and further retrenching hatreds that must be healed. Shame on Trump and shame on those who would support this misconceived move. Another point of view comes from the Federalist uh, position. Trump's recognition of Jerusalem makes peace more likely, according to David Harsanyi, which, uh, frankly, I find incredibly unlikely. In fact, really virtually irrational in the face of the historic situation, the circumstances we confront. But here's the thrust of his argument, a couple of key points that are very, very telling and ought to be disturbing to every American citizen. Bill Clinton attacked George H.W. Bush for having repeatedly challenged Israel's sovereignty over a united Jerusalem and promised to back Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. That is William Jefferson Clinton. In 1995, the Jerusalem Embassy Act passed overwhelmingly in both the House and the Senate. The law funds the relocation of the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and recognizes the city as the undivided capital of Israel. Clinton balked. So George W. Bush attacked Clinton for failing to deliver and promised that he would start the process of moving the embassy as soon as I'm sworn in. He did it. Barack Obama, openly antagonistic toward Israel from the very beginning, didn't even bother with the fiction. Every one of these presidents signed a waiver every six months, postponing the legislation, and every one of them failed to bring about a peaceful end to the conflict or a Palestinian state, because every one of them had to deal with unrealistic stipulations from Palestinian leadership which included a demand that Jerusalem proper be the capital of their new state. In June, when the no one thought Trump would follow through on his promise, when no one thought Trump would follow through on his promise, the Senate, including every Democrat who was there, voted to prod the president, as Politico characterized it, into moving the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. The Senate voted 50 to 0 on a resolution 90 to 0, on a resolution marking the 50th anniversary of Jerusalem's reunification, calling the president and all United States officials to abide by the 1995 law and all of its provisions. Now, you have to understand what's going on here. The, The Israeli lobby... Uh, is not even required to register as a foreign agent, even though it exercises far more control over Congress than any other lobby has ever exercised in history. Uh, The United States is undertaking trifling harassment of Russia, for example, requiring Russia today to register as a foreign agent. Russia today doesn't exert any influence over our Congress. As Cynthia McKinney explained, A few years ago, when a new member arrives in Washington, D.C., they're asked to sign a pledge to put the interests of Israel ahead of those of the United States, where those who do not find themselves confronted with a well-financed alternative candidate the next time around, or even that their district has been redrawn 
and that they no longer have a seat. Cynthia McKinney was able to trans transcend those obstacles, but most have not been. We lost, for example, Dennis Kucinich, whom I regarded as the most intelligent member of Congress because his district had been redrawn. Now, frankly, I take such a dim view of this development that when I was interviewed by Press TV, which is an Iranian news service, for my opinions about this, I explained that it, it represented the massive influence that Israel exerts over our Congress. Indeed, when I was recently asked by a colleague, did I know how many members of the present Congress had refused to sign the pledge? I said, no, actually, I did not. And he raised one finger of one hand, one member of Congress. What this means is that our Congress is bought and paid for by Israel. On the air, I condemn Donald Trump to rot in hell for making this decision because it is so colossally bad, so disrespectful of other nations, other religions, other populations, where the Palestinian issue is the greatest human rights issue of our time. In my judgment, Donald Trump has failed and failed miserably and by an enormous margin. I also observed that we have reports that Sheldon Adelson, who's been behind the mass migration into Europe to destroy European culture, who has bought and paid for Antifa and Black Lives Matter in Charlottesville, who's been supporting the idea of taking down uh, icons to American history and thereby causing convolutions in American culture, have been prodding Donald Trump to take this step. I therefore also, during that interview, condemned Sheldon Adelson to rot in hell with Donald Trump, and I do not qualify what I said on that occasion. On the contrary, I reaffirm it. We have to do something about the the body politic is infested with a, a Zionist cancer that has its origins in Tel Aviv, where Bibi Netanyahu is its most prominent representative, but where here in the United States, other very, very wealthy and politically influenced uh, Jews are also behind it, Sheldon Adelson being an exemplar par excellence. I admire American Jews, such as Michael Lerner, who stand for the uh, uh, objective recognition of the human rights of all people, including the Palestinian. But that's not what's taking place in Israel today. And indeed, when a survey was taken, not a scientific poll, admittedly, but one that I suspect is very close to the mark, What's your reaction to Trump's announcement that the U.S. now recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? 83% of voters have stated shock, anger, and dismay. Well, the situation may, in fact, be getting worse on other fronts as well. Uh, 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 The U.S. appears to be moving closer to a war with Iran, in fact, far closer uh, than we think. The U.S. does not intend to end or even curtail its military presence in Iraq, as well as Syria, after the defeat of the Islamic State. 
It's planning to turn Iraq into a major theater of confrontation with Iran. There are signs that a war with Iran may be much closer than we think. CIA Director Mike Pompeo, an official known for his staunch opposition to Iran, has warned Tehran that the United States would hold it accountable for any attacks it conducted on American interests. Addressing high-ranking U.S. military and security officials on Saturday, December 2nd, at a defense forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute in Simi Valley, California. Pompeo said that he had sent the letter to General Qasem Soleimani, a leader of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and elite Quds. What we were communicating to him in that letter was that we will hold him and Iran accountable for any actions that he and the leadership of Iran might take. According to Pompeo, the message was sent after the senior Iranian military commander had indicated that forces under his control might attack U.S. forces in Iraq. He did not specify the date. You need to only look to the past few weeks and efforts of the Iranians to exert influence in northern Iraq, in addition to other places in Iraq, to see that Iranian efforts to be the hegemonic power throughout the Middle East continue to increase, he notes. Pompeo also said that Saudi Arabia has grown more willing to share intelligence with other Middle Eastern nations regarding Iran and Islamist extremism. But let me point out, Iran may be the most peace-loving major nation in the world. Iran has not launched an aggressive war against another nation since 1775. To put that in historical perspective, the ratification of the Constitution began in 1787. George Washington was elected our first president in 1789. So for longer than the United States has existed as a constitutional republic, Iran has not launched a war of aggression against any other state. It defended itself, of course, against the onslaught from Iraq, which was in fact the reason why uh, it had been in fact engaged in developing nuclear weapons, which it abandoned in 2003 when Saddam was taken out of office and the effort was discontinued. In fact, our own intelligence agencies, as I report again and again and again, concluded already in 2007 that Iran was not pursuing nuclear weapons, reaffirmed that conclusion in 2011, where even the Mossad in 2012 came to agreement that Iran was not pursuing nuclear weapons just weeks before Bibi Netanyahu would go to the United Nations and assert precisely the opposite. To continue, according to Kurdish Boss News, large-scale U.S. forces arrived at the K-1 base K-1 west of Kirkuk on November 28th to split into two contingents. Several hundred servicemen stayed on base. Another contingent headed east on December 1st toward Tuz Kumatu in eastern Iraq and took control of the Siddiq military airport 35 kilometers to the west. Tuz Kumatu lies 100 kilometers west of the Iraqi-Iranian border and 163 kilometers north of Baghdad. U.S. forces have never been deployed so close to the Iranian border since the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. In mid-December, several hundred U.S. Marines were reported to be building a new base in western Iraq 
about 20 kilometers from the strategic Anbar province town of Al-Qam, which had been captured from Islamic State. Evidently, the move is part of a U.S. plan to prevent the creation of a Syrian-Iraqi corridor from Iran. In mid-October, the Iraqi government allowed pro-Iranian Shia forces to capture Kirkuk and its oil fields from the Kurds. The U.S. is not happy with the prospect of Iranian control established over northern Iraq's oil. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson on October 22nd said it was time for Iranian military advisors and fighters to go home and allow the Iraqi people to regain control. Can you imagine the absurdity of what he just said there? Rex Tillerson saying it's time for the Iranian military advisors and fighters to go home and allow the Iraqi people to regain control? What about the U.S. invaders in Iraq, in Libya, and in Syria, where we're still there attempting to take out the democratically elected president of Syria? The hypocrisy of the United States knows no bounds. This is morally contemptible, intellectually insulting, and politically disgraceful coming from the United States of America, which has conducted over 80 coups and assassinations around the world. Uh, Under uh, 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 Barack Obama alone, the United States conducted at least 14 military interventions in Africa alone, in Africa alone. Tillerson's statement was followed up by U.S. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who said in an interview on October 25th that it is possible to contain Iran's influence in the Middle East, and that a strong Iraq would be part of that. Coincidence or not, the American forces were deployed during the Iran, near the Iranian border at almost the same time Israel was delivering an airstrike December 2nd at the Syrian Army's 91st Brigade headquarters outside Al-Kiswa, 14 kilometers southwest of Damascus. Damascus, where an alleged meeting of pro-Iranian Shia military chiefs was taking place. On November 10th, the BBC released a report that Iran was building a permanent military base in Syria. Israeli leaders have sworn to prevent Iran from establishing permanent bases. But the Russians have to shoot down any, any Israeli intrusion into Syria. They must step up to the plate. This is far too serious. Russia has led the defeat of ISIS in Syria with the assistance of the Iranians at the request of the Syrian government. Bear in mind, ISIS was created by the United States in 2012. John Brennan, as as director of CIA, Hillary Clinton as secretary of state, Barack Obama as president of the United States, directed its creation. Judicial Watch was able to obtain documents from the Defense Intelligence Agency confirming this fact of the matter. ISIS was made in the USA. And for all of the controversy swirling about Michael Flynn, he is, from his past conduct, been an honorable man. He opposed the creation of ISIS. It was for that reason that John Brennan suggested to Barack Obama he ought to fire Michael Flynn, not for any malfeasance on the part of Michael Flynn, but because he opposed the grotesque malfeasance on the part of John Brennan, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama himself. 
This is the level of deceit and deception to which we have been subjected, where we're hearing 24-7 from the liberal media how Michael Flynn is a monster. Well, he stood up for you and for me and for the world by opposing the creation of ISIS. But the despots who were running the government went ahead uh, and overruled him and subsequently fired him. Saudi Arabia is seeking alliances that can cement its presence in Iraq. The high-level Iraqi visits to Jeddah and Rihad have increased lately on the diplomatic, economic, and military levels. Uh, Rihad has also increased its participation in international economic forums in Baghdad, counting 60 companies that partook in Baghdad's international fair. This summer, Moqtada al-Sadr, the leader of the Sadrist movement, which represents millions of poor Shia Muslims in Baghdad and throughout southern Iraq, paid a visit to Saudi Arabia. He also visited the United Arab Emirates, another Sunni state that opposes Iran. U.S. military presence in, in Iraq allows it to prevent the establishment by Iran of a land leak to the Mediterranean via Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, boost its role in Syrian settlement, conduct covert cross-border operations to destabilize the government in Tehran, and maintain staging areas to deploy reinforcement in case of war. There are signs that a coordinated campaign to roll back Iran is underway. The possibility of war against Iran has grown immensely in the recent days. Well, if you think that's bad enough, listen to what Paul Craig Roberts has had to say. Can't you see war on the horizon? According to news reports in the British press, Russian President Vladimir Putin has instructed Russia's industries to prepare themselves to be able to make a quick switch to war production. Clearly, the Russian government would not make such an announcement unless it was convinced that the prospect of war with the West was real. For some time, I have emphasized in my columns that the consequences of years of hostile actions taken by Washington and its European vassals against Russia were leading to war. It's easy to understand that the massive U.S. military security complex needs a convincing enemy in order to justify its enormous budget, that the crazed neoconservatives put their fantasy ideology of U.S. world hegemony above the life of the planet, and that Hillary and the Democratic National Committee will do everything to overturn Trump's presidential victory. However, it's difficult to understand why the European political leaders are willing to put their countries at risk for Washington's benefit, yet they do. For example, on November 13th, UK PM Theresa May said that Russia was a threat to international security and was interfering in European elections and hacking European governments. There is no more evidence for these claims than there is for Russiagate. Yet the allegations continue and multiply. Now the European Union is organizing former provinces of the Soviet Union. Belarus, Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan into an Eastern partnership with the European Union. May I say that's a gross violation of the sovereign treaties entered into between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, where the United States committed itself to not seeking to turn the, the new Eastern Bloc countries that would become independent states into NATO nations or recruit them to pose a threat to the new uh, borders of Russia. In other words, the rest is openly organizing former provinces of Moscow against Russia, declared by Prime Minister May to be a hostile state. 
Russia knows there is no basis for the allegations against Russia and regards them as identical to the false allegations against Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, and Bashir al-Assad in order to justify military attacks on Iraq, Libya, and Syria. Having convinced Russia she has been set up for attack, Russia is preparing for war. Think about this for a moment. The world is being driven to Armageddon simply because a greedy and corrupt U.S. military security complex needs an enemy to justify its huge budget because Hillary Clinton and the DNC cannot accept political defeat and because the neoconservatives have an ideology of American supremacy. What's the difference between the distested white supremacy and the American supremacy that President Obama himself endorsed? Is white supremacy terrible and American supremacy is God's gift to the exceptional and indispensable country? The Russian government has openly shared its concerns that Russia is being set up for military attack, as I, if not CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post have reported. The deputy commander of the Russian military's Operation Command stated publicly the concern that Washington is preparing a surprise nuclear attack against Russia. President Putin recently called attention to Washington's collection of Russian DNA for an Air Force weapons lab which implies development of a Russian-specific bioweapon. On many occasions, Russia has called attention to U.S. and NATO bases on its borders, despite previous assurance from U.S. administration that no such thing was happened. We have to ask ourselves, why is it not the top item of public and political discussion that Washington has convinced Russia, a premier nuclear and military power, that Russia is going to be attacked? Instead, we hear of football players who kneel for the national anthem, fake news about Russiagate, a Las Vegas shooting, and so on. We must also ask ourselves how much longer Washington is going to permit any of us via the Internet to report the real news instead of the fake news that Washington uses to control explanations. The efforts by the Federal Communications Commission chairman to destroy net neutrality and other efforts underway to discredit factual news <coughs> as Russian propaganda indicate that Washington has concluded that in order uh, to war on Russia, Washington must also war on truth. Washington will not survive its war, and neither will the American and the European people. Paul Craig Roberts, sober words from our nation's leading public intellectual. You cannot afford to miss their import. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book 
with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. I'm looking for questions from the chat room, which ironically, I just figured out how to access for my last show, and now it turns out we've got a new one, and I haven't figured out how to get into it yet. Patrick, however, has volunteered to assist by giving me questions from the new chat room, but I gather we're not getting a lot of chat yet, so I just want you to know that if you have a question, go ahead, put it up in the chat room, he'll forward it to me, and I'll be glad to address it. We have a number of uh, disturbing developments here at home regarding a whole range of of, uh, politically loaded but contrived events that have affected our recent history. Here's one. Hero cop a pulse shooting is being terminated from the force. This was originally published on the 5th of December and updated on the 6th. An officer hailed as a hero for his actions during the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, has been let go just six months before he would have become vested in his pension. Omar Delgado, a 45, a corporal at the Eatonville Police Department, was one of the first officers at the club in the early hours of June 12, 2016. After a gunman killed 46 people and injured dozens in what is now the second deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. Delgado, who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of witnessing the carnage, scoured through bodies that littered the ground and helped survivors get to safety. One of the club goers he helped was Angel Colon, who was shot six times. The pair's story of survival and their growing friendship grabbed headlines around the world. The department is terminating Delgado from the force at the end of the month. Eatonville family, council members confirmed at a meeting late Tuesday. His uh, last date on his uh, $38,500 a year job will be the 30th of December. But let me tell you, this guy doesn't suffer any uh, post-traumatic stress from being a crisis actor at a scene where no shooting took place. Listen, I published a book about this one, too. We have discovered that the permit for the club expired three years, not three days, not three weeks, not three months, three years before the event. That means the club wasn't even open. It had a legal occupancy of 150, a legal occupancy of 150. And if the 300, they only had 11 parking spaces, if 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 fifty uh, had been shot and fifty three wounded, there would have been abandoned vehicles all over the place. They weren't there. They weren't there because the club wasn't even open and there wasn't any shooting. It's all complete nonsense. We had very very clumsy crisis actors involved here, who are even carrying you know other crisis actors toward the club rather than away from it. Then when they got out of view. They'd put them down and do a little jig because they were so proud of themselves for their for their comedic acting. In fact, there's a right now, we have the Crisis Actor Awards for 2017. Three of the nominees are from the Orlando shooting. 
okay, from the Orlando shooting. In fact, a, a correspondent of mine who resides in the area wrote to tell me it wasn't even a gay club. It wasn't even a gay club. I mean, how, uh, uh, how insulting is that? Then it turns out that the Orlando Emergency Medical Center has recently declared that it, it's not going to charge any, any fees for services rendered, which is explicable on the ground that they didn't render any services and they don't want to be prosecuted for fraud. Mind you, when's the last time you turned of a hospital not charging for a Band-Aid? Never. This is just ridiculous beyond belief. And then they had three little Dance Orlando dance videos, one involving uh, actors and actresses dressed up as nurses and, and doctors, another uh, actors and actresses dressed up as policewomen and, and uh, policemen. I mean, they're a joke. They're a fantasy. That's what's going on here. We're having one ridiculous joke perpetrated upon us after another. And here they're going to fire this guy? Why? Because he, he, he might speak the truth about why, what happened, that he might let the cat out of the box? I mean, give me a break. This is ridiculous. We even find that the, the Department of Homeland Security designated Orlando, the Orlando Massacre an NSSE pre-planned event. Vero Beach, Florida, true news. For the first time in history, a terrorist attack was declared a national special security event by the Department of Homeland Security, according to a recently obtained police report. According to an Orange County Sheriff's Office incident report written by Sergeant David Legvold, who served as the assistant team commander for the critical incident management team, CIMT, on the scene at the July 12th Orlando shooting, the attack was declared a national uh, special security event. Uh, where the officers, however, were ordered not to discuss the details. I mean, in other words, it's slipping through. This is analogous to what we found at Sandy Hook. We actually got a copy of the FEMA manual for the two-day event, okay? It runs, uh, I don't know, 10, 10, 12 pages. Uh, James Tracy, who's engaged in a trial right now in an effort to regain his position at Florida Atlantic University, first uncovered it. When I included it as Appendix A, when I published Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, well, here you have a parallel. What you find in, it, it happened in Newtown is they had a two-day exercise. The 13th was a rehearsal. The 14th was going live, uh, which explains why you had, you know, porta-potties already in place, why you had a sign saying everyone must check in, why you had uh, pizza and bottled water at the firehouse, uh, why you had so many marrying name tags on lanyards, why you had parents bringing children to the scene. No parent would actually bring a child to the scene of a child shooting massacre. I mean, that would be ludicrous. But they would bring a child to the scene of a, of a rehearsal because they're treating it as a festive occasion. When Wolfgang Halbig, Tried to find out who had delivered the porta potties. That's a rather innocuous issue, one would have thought. He was stymied. They wouldn't let him know. But we understand now that we understand now uh, how that happened because uh, he, he would have learned the date and it would have been on the 13th. I mean, there were several fiascos regarding the 13th. 
uh, because there were, do, do, you know, donation websites were put up by participants who became confused over the date. Already on the 13th, Adam Lanza, the fictional shooter, had his date of death originally recorded as having on the 13th, as I never tire of saying, making his his uh, uh, accomplishment in shooting 20 children and six adults the following day all the more remarkable. This was complete nonsense, utter rubbish. We've been able to prove that children were fictional. They were made up out of photographs of other kids when they were younger. We have a proof, for example, see Sandy Hook charade. Noah Posner was Michael Vabner as a child. Where Noah Posner is the most unusual little boy for not only having died at Sandy Hook on 14 December 2012, but for dying again uh, in Pakistan on 16 December 2014, where his father, the man who poses as his father, Leonard P. Osner, we believe is his real name, who just withdrew his lawsuit against Wolfgang Helbig when a judge directed that Lenny had to sit for a video deposition at the last minute he withdrew the lawsuit uh, uh, in advice. It advisedly sent Kelly Watt a copy of a death certificate after she'd spent 100 hours talking with him and complained she didn't believe a word he said, didn't believe he had a son, didn't believe he died there when it turned out to be a fabrication. That's also in the book, which you can download for yourself for free. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. Just put in the title. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. Download it as a PDF for free. How many proofs can you find there that the school was closed by 2008, that there were no students there, uh, that the whole thing was simply a FEMA exercise, that no children died? You'll even find Paul Preston's interview with Sophia Smallstorm, where Paul Preston, who's been a superintendent of schools and has uh, overseen drills of this kind before in the past, was so skeptical about what he saw being reported from Sandy Hook that he reached out to his contacts in the Obama Department of Education, all of whom confirmed to him that it had been a drill, that no one had died, and that was done to promote gun control. I mean, how bad is that? So it turns out if you look for federal planning for these uh, 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 national special security events, I mean, that's drill may begin two or three years prior to the event, local planning 12 to 18 months in event. The implementation mirrors similar planning protocols involved in a full-scale military operation, including establishing a steering committee, establishing subcommittees, identifying and acquiring resources, constructing an operational security plan, establishing protocols, conducting training, executing the plan, completing after-action reviews. This would have been true at Sandy Hook, at the Boston bombing, at San Bernardino. More recently, Las Vegas is very peculiar in many, many ways, but we know the federal government is there covering up. We know the FBI wiped the cell phones and laptops clean. We know that uh, uh, Las Vegas was a movie, that they had a pre-recorded soundtrack with the sound of real machine guns, real military weapons, even bullets striking the ground which uh, that was being broadcast on the public address system for the concert. And then they had coordinated light special effects, flashing lights, 
in the middle of the Mandalay Bay Hotel, simulating a machine gun, rapid burst, and then floors above it, three light blasts to simulate three, three round shots, bursts, which are typical of American military equipment. We also have yet another shooter in the crowd who turns, and you can see the crowd illuminating by the flash of light from his muzzle. He's obviously firing blanks. We've gone through 33 videos, and we find, yes, lots of sounds of shots, but not a single actual shot. We know from a military physician with a great deal of expertise who reviewed the patients in the hospital that they were, he was forced to conclude they were actors, that none of them had actually been shot. We have an American trauma surgeon confirming they're not even connected to the diagnostic equipment that would monitor their blood pressure and their IV drip. I mean, this is the absurdity brought to us by Barack Hussein Obama, who had the Smith-Munt Act of 1948 nullified by the NDAA of, of 2013, where the Smith-Munt Act precluded the use of the same techniques of disinformation and propaganda within the United States that was being used without. It's just unleashed a tidal wave of these phony events, a tidal wave. I mean, if you want to learn about them, I am doing my best to bring together experts on each of these cases to document what really happened so the American people can have access to a repository of authoritative information about what really happened. In this case, regarding Orlando, it's in the book entitled From Orlando to Dallas and Beyond. You can check it out at Moon Rock Books. The contributors include James Tracy, Ph.D., Dr. Eowyn, Ph.D., Scott Alexander, Vivian Lee, Ph.D., Neil Casey, Mike Palachek, Paul Craig Roberts, Ph.D., Jim Fetzer, Ph.D., Oli Domagard, Jeff Rents, Preston James, Ph.D., Lori Price, Wayne Madsen, James Robertson, Sherry Edwards, M.E.D. I'm telling you, these are experts on different aspects of these cases. And the case, with regard to Jeff Rents, with whom I had a spectacular falling out over Las Vegas, which he persists in insisting was a real deal, and that Muslims were responsible, which I regard as simply ludicrous. Jeff had a chapter there about Hillary Clinton and her body double. So you got, a, oh, I don't know, 100 to 150 or more photographs of Hillary in a couple of her body doubles. We know now she has even more. And, you know, stay tuned for a progress report on that front. We also have a situation in relation to Charlottesville, where we have a report by a former U.S. attorney uh, named Timothy Heapfey, H-E-A-P-H-Y, reporting that the white supremacists were ready for violence in Charlottesville. The police were not, which is a complete absurdity. This was published on December 1st on the front pages of the New York Times. I have published now two blogs taking this apart. I mean, frankly, it's embarrassing. This guy gave only most superficial attention to the events. He, he based his research on public reports that were giving distorted uh, accounts of what had actually happened. The first is entitled uh, uh, Missing the Boat in Charlottesville, uh, and you can find it on my blog. Just go to you know jamesfetzer.blogspot.com and just put in Missing the Boat. You'll get it. The second, which I published on December 5th, that was Tuesday, 
Three Massive Blunders in the Independent Report on Charlottesville by Timothy Heapy. I begin the following fashion. No doubt the 220-page independent review of the 2017 protests events in Charlottesville, Virginia, conducted by former U.S. Attorney Timothy Heapy, which you can download and read for yourself, sounds very plausible on its face. In its preface, it claims to have made an exhaustive effort to put together a coherent narrative of the events that took place in Charlottesville, especially the violent confrontations that occurred 11-12 August 2017, which led to tragic consequences. Well, while he puts together a coherent narrative, uh, he doesn't, in fact, account for the major events that occur there. He doesn't account for... uh, uh, number one, he 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 ignores the the. Uh, wow, I have the. Let me re- recapture this. He ignores that James Alex Field was not the driver, okay? The first driver, uh, the driver was supposed to be this guy who was a 20-year-old schizophrenic who was on anti-drug medication named James Alex Field. But the Washington Post, for example, reported Charlottesville response to white supremacist rally is sharply criticized in report of 1 December 2017, including the classic photo of the vehicular result that appeared on the front pages of the New York Times and other newspapers around the world, but doesn't observe that it was a fabricated photograph photoshopped using resources from as many as three takes of the stage crash. Notice in particular there's a black Toyota pickup truck to its right in the one published in the New York Times. It makes a dramatic image but does not correspond to real events that took place in real time where you have no less than three video studies showing multiple takes, one with one car and the black Toyota pickup at its side, one with one car but no black Toyota pickup at its side, and one with three cars, including a maroon van, which had been left at the intersection for about five minutes with no driver prior to the staged collision to ensure they did not suffer whiplap or other harm to their bodies. So, you know... The driver was identified in the New York Times. What we know about James Alec Field, driver charged in Charlottesville killing as James Field, but the man driving the vehicle is obviously not him. How can an independent review of Charlottesville be taken seriously when it doesn't even properly identify the actual driver of the Dodge Challenger that was used in the stage event at 4th and Water Street? And this blunder was not, does not stand alone in his report. We also know Heather Heyer didn't die in the car crash. The purpose of these deceptions have made it a practice of asserting deaths that did not occur or did not occur as they allege. We have proven, for example, that the Sandy Hook children of photo fictions made up of older children when they were younger. And Mona Alexis Presley has established that in case after case, the alleged victims of the Las Vegas massacre died in other states or on other dates or from different causes of death. According to Timothy Heapy, a bystander, Heather Heyer died in the car crash in Charlottesville. In his timeline, 1.41 p.m., James Field drive vehicle into Crowd 4th Street in water, killing Heather Heyer, injuring dozen. Her death is cited four times in the report. 
on page six twice, on page seven, on page 163, and the timeline on page 193 shown here. According to the Los Angeles Times, Charlottesville honors Heather Heyer at a memorial service 16 August 2017. Heather Heyer, 32, was killed when a car rammed into a crowd of people protesting a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where this photo appears. But Heather Heyer, who's been difficult to track down, but Mona has discovered she actually died the following day, 13 August 2017, from a heart attack, rather than on 12 August 2017, the day she is said to have been hit by a car, which is consistent with her prior findings about the Las Vegas victims. A new listing even has her dying on 8 December 2017, which as of today has not yet even arrived. How bad is that? Number three, state troopers did not die in a helicopter crash. Once again, according to Timothy Heapy, two Virginia state troopers were killed that afternoon during a crash of the helicopter they were using to conduct surveillance related to the events taking place in Charlottesville. This case is especially striking because Heapy cites a preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board released on 5 September that does not identify the cause of the crash but confirms that Lieutenant H.J. Cullen and Trooper Pilot J.M. Bates were both killed in the crash. But that's very surprising since we have photographs of the troopers departing the scene of the crash wearing their flight uniforms and very much alive. That the NTSB should be participating in this event does not surprise me since they covered up the causes of the death of Senator Paul Wellstone, his wife, daughter, and three aides, and their two pilots uh, on the 25th of October, 2002, as John P. Costello, PhD, and I explained in the NTSB failed Wellstone, published by Michael Rupert and his From the Wilderness newsletter. We have proven the government agencies are participants in these events to promote a political agenda or cover up crime. And just to reinforce the point, I included the video that captured their survival and recovery. Check it out. This is just really stunning stuff, and I can hardly believe that we're still being subjected to, to, to these events. Uh, we also have a couple further details from Las Vegas. That the Las Vegas uh, Homicide Division was pulled off of the Paddock shooting investigation and replaced by Lombardo's undersheriff. Homicide Division investigating Paddock suicide abruptly pulled off case, replaced by Sheriff Lombardo's number one guy, Intel Hunt. Investigative journalist and former police officer Doug Papa told Fox News host Tucker Carlson Tuesday night, and I watched this, that he was told from sources both inside and outside the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department that the Homicide Division was pulled off the investigation into Stephen Paddock's death early on for unknown reason, which is very odd because a suicide has to be investigated to make sure it wasn't a homicide. More when we return. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, 
the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. Glad to be back. We do have a question from the from the chat room about the the first fake shooting. Uh, in a way, I think this deserves to be addressed against the broader background of false flags in history, which have played a rather important role. I mean, there are very detailed chronologies of these. You can find history of false flags in Wikipedia, which is. Uh, a Zionist op, but where you can get a certain amount of truth there. And then you want to go further to corroborate, depending on the seriousness of your intent. Just to cite a few that are particularly important in uh, you know the last 150 years of American history, for example. Uh, remember, the main occurred when we had a you know a battleship that blew up in Havana Harbor. It was claimed to have been done by the Spaniards or the Cubans. There was actually never any real evidence that was the case, but the Hearst newspapers uh, incited the issue and, and made it a cause to go to war, which led to the Spanish-American War and our appropriation of a rather large segment of territory, uh, it, 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 very significant. The phrase itself, by the way, false flags originates from pirate days when pirates would fly the flag of a, of a nation friendly to the target vessel until they got within close proximity. And then they'd run down the false flag and run up the skull and bones to identify themselves as they, as they sought to commandeer the target vessel. In World War uh, I, before the entry of the United States, a civilian liner, the Lusitania, was sunk by German U-boats. While the Americans were told this was an atrocity, they were not informed that in the hold of the Lusitania there were a staggering supply of military armaments, which meant that, in fact, was a legitimate target for the U-2. Hitler used a number of these uh, false flags. One, of course, was the Reichstag fire, uh, uh, which was supposed to have been caused by the communists and, and Jews who were opposed to to his policies to to resurrect Germany out of the rubble of World War uh, One. And we're also uh, Polish soldiers, uh, uh, German prisoners were dressed as Polish soldiers at a radio station in order to claim that the Poles were invading Germany and to launch an onslaught on Poland. We know, of course, World War II, that even Franklin Delano Roosevelt was aware that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. We had constrained their access to oil in the South Pacific and uh, provoked them in such a fashion that it became all but inevitable. We had shattered the German, the Japanese code. You can find a wonderful book about it entitled Day of Deceit by John Stennett that's going to, you know, really take the scales from your eyes. There have, of course, been others like the Gulf of Tonkin incident where Lyndon Johnson claimed that Vietnamese torpedo boats had attacked the Turner Joy and, you know, and the Maddox, but he would later admit for all he knew they were shooting at whales out there. It was just phony, totally contrived, uh, just like so many we've had in recent times, such as the uh, Iraqi girl before the first Gulf War who came into Congress and 
and cried about seeing, you know, uh, uh, Iraqi soldiers dump babies out of incubators in a hospital in Kuwait, uh, which led to a surge of resentment against Iraq and a total slaughter when George H.W. Bush reversed his uh, green light he had transmitted to Saddam Hussein. The Iraqis were slant drilling into Iraqi oil fields, and uh, Saddam wanted to do something about it. Uh, The withdrawal of the Iraqi forces was so preemptory, it led to a slaughter. I mean, just a massive slaughter, almost unprecedented in history. Uh, We, if you if you look at the first, you know, false flags here in the United States. Well, there are various incidents such as, uh, you know, Ruby Ridge and Waco, where the government was concocting stories and fabricating events. The Mura bombing in Oklahoma City is uh, obviously another government event where they use very powerful explosives. It wasn't done by a fertilizer bomb. Timothy McVeigh was, uh, you know, made the patsy there, just as Lee Oswald would be made the patsy for JFK and Sirhan Sirhan for Bobby and and uh, James Earl Ray for Martin Luther King, which is a particularly horrendous case. It turns out Martin wasn't killed on the balcony. He was transported in an ambulance to a more distant hospital where a racist physician had promised to finish him off if we were still alive. He ran everyone out of the OR that smothered Martin to death with a pillow. William Pepper has done uh, brilliant research in exposing all of this. I've also done interviews with Oli Domagard about it. But it's getting harder and harder to get the truth out because, well, look, here, here the next story I want to cover. Google to appoint a staff of 10,000 to weed out extremist content on YouTube. Well, it's got nothing to do with extremist content. I mean, you know, what defines extremist content? It means anything... Any reports that are contrary to the government's own official accounts, whether it's of Sandy Hook or the Boston bombing or, or Orlando, I mean, you know, really, there's a superabundance we know about these things, but the government is intent on suppressing it because as long as the people don't, don't know the truth, their fabricated stories are going to prevail. And now Google, you can see Google is not a friend of truth and freedom of speech and exchange. I mean, rational criticism, getting stories out there where we can kick them around and determine whether they're true or false and do additional research is indispensable to the search for truth. We also have the bizarre event that Pulitzer Prize winner Seymour Hearst, John Pilger, Noam Chomsky are being considered to be far-right conspiracists in the psychophanic new school of journalism. Very interesting article about how... uh, Manadel al-Jamad hung from the rusty rings of a bar's window, his hands behind his back, in a style known as a Palestinian hanging. American troops beat him and demanded the unconscious prisoner reveal the whereabouts of a non-existent weapons cache. His face was hidden under a green bag and hanging down over his droopy shoulders. Displaced from their sockets by gravity's force, pushing his limp body down to the cold ground of his cell. Half an hour passed, and the exuberant American soldiers started to think the sorry Iraqi man was cheating them by playing dead like a possum and released him from his stress position. They then realized the prisoner had no pulse. Such harrowing scenes from the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq would forever remain unknown to the American public who pay the soldiers in question if it weren't for the relentless muckraking 
of the world's most accomplished investigative reporter, Seymour Hirsch. Hirsch won the Orwell Award for his expose, adding to his collection alongside his Pulitzer gained in 1970 for his work on the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam. However, for the fake news conscious group of journalists in 2017, Hirsch is a far-right conspiracist and unhinged for his willingness to confront power rather than parrot its claims ad nauseum. In his Guardian column, this is a newspaper in the UK, George Monboy argues that Hirsch, alongside journalist and documentary maker John Pilger, and even more strangely, the left-wing academic Noam Chomsky, are all guilty of spreading far-right conspiracy theories surrounding the sarin attack on the Syrian town of Qam Shaykhoun. Uh, this is where we already know that it wasn't... Uh, uh, Bashir al-Assad, that it was a constructed event, that it was phony, that the White Hats were even involved in it. Uh, he makes a point in a, that a couple of months ago, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons released a report allegedly conclusively determining that the Assad regime was responsible. But we know, in fact, it wasn't responsible. I mean, this is absolutely incredible for their attempts to balance out various facts and potential theories, none of which at that point had yet been proven nor disproven, to the lack of access international bodies had at the site, and by extension, the lack of an official verdict. The three men are equated to top show conspiracists Alex Jones and various Twitter tolls. I mean, Orwell once said, and this is a very telling quote, journalism is printing what someone else does not want printed. Everything else is public relations. That could be my motto. I adopt that. For the current iteration of reports and commentators who line the halls of the Guardian and the New York Times, however, being branded a PR man is no longer the cardinal journalistic sin. Instead, the constant fear of being forever confined to the tinfoil zone of cabals, conspiracies, and the government putting chemicals in the water to turn frogs gray is a real career killer. A healthy dose of cynicism is needed to balance the media playing field toward the people using information to shape their worldview. Cold, hard, news wire-style reporting is, of course, naturally weighted in favor of the establishment, one would presume. Government ministers are considered more relevant than think tanks or academic institutions. But the fact is, we're dealing with propaganda. The atmosphere of press subordinates led us to jump first headlong into the Iraq war. You know, the mindless U.S. grab of resources and geopolitical power, which cost a million innocent minds. The man criticized John Pilger, researches this documentary in the war you don't see. At a time when the free press is increasingly under attack, when Google is increasingly censoring alternative news outlets and public broadcasters are having to register as foreign agents, RT, for example. It isn't helpful for a journalist to turn on his own and accuse the most accomplished members of his profession of being conspiracy theorists for asking questions. One of the more promising side effects of the Trump era is that mainstream press outlets are beginning to once again show some spine. The Washington Post and New York Times have regained a belligerence that was especially absent during Obama's drone wars and his expansion of the NSA. Better late than never. Well, I'm not convinced. The glare of the media spotlight has meant Trump's most potentially damaging policies, the wall, the repeal of Obamacare, the Muslim ban, have either failed or been significantly stripped back. But here I have to disagree. The Supreme Court has just upheld the, the ban that Trump imposed, 
which would have been better imposed on the region, the Middle East, where so much violence is taking place than on a religion. It was obviously not, in fact, a Muslim ban, because the nations in Southeast Asia that have the largest number of Muslims were not being banned. I reported repeatedly at the time that the Constitution made it very clear that the president can, by his own proclamation, proscribe any group, any individuals or group from access to the United States if he judges it to be in the interests of the nation's security. Everything else that has transpired since has been political theater promoted by the bashers of Trump and the leftovers from the Obama administration and the, and, and the Hillary lovers. Here's an interesting story, too, about how, you know, even political cartoons can be bashed. The Boston Globe is slammed over a Sheldon Adelson cartoon, okay? And here's a cartoon. Uh, The letter to the editor, uh, it shows uh, correspondents, you know, who who are worried about uh, showing Americans as a trains freight in a packed cattle car where Adelson is portrayed as sitting with his wife, Mary Mandelson, in a priority passenger section getting a delivery of $14.6 billion. This is over the tax cuts. I mean, this is just absolutely unbelievable because the tax cuts are catastrophic. And Sheldon Adelson and other very wealthy people, including Donald Trump, are going to get an enormous disproportionate benefit while the rest of us are going to be left holding the bag. Here's a very significant development about the Boston bombing. John Remington Graham, with whom I've been long in collusion, where I published work of his on my blog, where he has been in contact with, with uh, the, 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 the mother of the boys and their aunt, Barrett. I have a whole blog that was primarily authored by Barrett. They didn't do it. Where uh, 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 Jack Graham, who's a retired professor of law, has been trying to get the attention of the court that there was obvious glaring evidence that the brothers were not responsible. In fact, it turns out, and this is so ironic in so many ways, when the brothers' images were photoshopped into the Boston bombing footage, they were not, in fact, present on that occasion. Brett convinced me, pointing out that the, the, the proof they'd been photoshopped was that Tamerlan, the older brother, was shown clean-shaven when he actually had a beard. And I asked her, could she prove it? And she sent me... Proof after proof after proof. Tamerlan lying in bed with his with his cat. He's got a beard. Uh, Tamerlan working out at a gymnasium with his brother Zoker shortly before the event. He's got a beard. Uh, uh, they, they had dinner that afternoon with a friend who called relieved to find they hadn't been at the marathon. He had a beard. Uh, there's convenience store footage when they're being pursued by the police. He's outside Zoker inside. He has a beard. He's arrested by the police, stripped naked, and put into a police car. He has a beard. Subsequently, his body shows up very, very dead with a huge gash in the side. He's still got a beard. Well, Jack noticed when I showed him the evidence we'd accumulated that the uh, while the FBI had reported that the two backpacks that exploded were black nylon backpacks, that neither Zoker nor Tamerlan was wearing a black nylon backpack. Zoker's was silver, Tamerlan's beige or gray. They made a blunder when they constructed this case and sought to frame them. So Jack has been doing his best to get the information, as simple and elegant a proof as you could have of their innocence, that the backpacks don't match. 
which means that there wasn't even probable cause for an arrest, much less an indictment or a conviction at trial. In the formal indictment in the court, it states specifically that the two backpacks that match, the two backpacks that exploded were black nylon backpack. Now, the the defense counsel, uh, 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 Judy, her first name, uh, uh, while she pled them uh, not guilty in her opening statement, she acknowledged they did it, which was the perfect frame. They didn't do it. She had proof that exculpated them, a perfect alibi. They were not there. The backpacks didn't match. This is unlike the OJ case where the glove, which was a skin-tight fitting glove, would have fit, but for the defense t- having him put on latex gloves in advance of trying them on right there in front of God and everyone in the court where the proceedings were televised. It was a fraud on the court by the OJ defense team. Well, here we have a different fraud on the court uh, by the defense counsel, uh, uh, evidently participating in collusion with the the prosecutor. Uh, uh, The judge, it's difficult for me to imagine how the judge could not have been complicit too. I have documented this in spades in the book I did about it. Nobody died in Boston either. Again, you can find it at at moonrockbooks.com. But get this, Jack Graham persevered, and he submitted an amicus curiae brief to the First Circuit Court of Appeal. And believe it or not, for the first time in American history, so far as we know, they accepted it. And it's now a part of the official record and it will exonerate, exonerate Zoker and prohibit a, 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 a judicial murder from taking place. And I can tell you this is going to have a lot of consequences because it's going to show the whole thing was a sham, that they already knew he was innocent, that he was put on trial, that it was a kangaroo court, that the, the Boston police knew it, that the Boston Globe knew it, that the defense counsel knew it, that the use absentee, that they use amputee actors, that they had fake blood. They even had a smoke machine, a studio-quality smoke machine. Here's a very simple order of the court, entered November 9, 2017. The motion of three citizens of the United States for leave to appear as friends of the court under Rule 29A of the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure is granted. The bar membership requirement of Local Rule 460A2, to the extent applicable, is waived. And I am one of those three friends of the court who are cited by Jeff Graham in his petition. We already know, and it cracked the case the day of the Boston uh, Marathon. It was these guys, these perps in khaki trousers, black jackets, black baseball cape. They worked for Kraft International, another one of these private armies. And here you can see, when you see the video version, or you can go to, uh, you know, I have these videos online. You can find the real deal Boston bombing update, the real deal Sandy Hook update, where I show you the very images I'm talking about here. And because I'm making a video recording of the show, you'll be able to find it when it's posted by Gary King on Gary King YouTube channel. So here you have a couple of these guys. One of them's wearing a black nylon backpack with a white square. Here's got the black nylon backpack with a white square. Then he's rushing away, no longer wearing the black nylon backpack with a white square. Well, where is it? It exploded. There it is. There's a black nylon backpack with a white square. And I juxtapose it with photographs of, of, of Zoker and Tamerlan 
and neither of them is wearing a black nylon backpack, okay? I mean, this is just embarrassingly bad. I'm so very, very proud of Jack Graham for persevering and to have had a role in this. Now, as many of you may know, Ibrahim Todeshev, 27, told his friends the FBI, he was a friend of the brothers, told his friends the FBI was coming to ask him questions about the Boston bombing, and he thought they were coming to kill him. While being questioned with all other witnesses present, the FBI reported he confessed to a triple homicide in 2011, then became violent, and they shot him dead. He is no longer available for questioning. The version I get is five FBI agents proceeded to question him. They normally do this in pairs. One asks the questions, the other takes a recording or transcript. Two of them, two of the parties of two left, leaving one FBI agent behind. And that this FBI agent claimed that Ibrahim that, uh, had assaulted him and he shot him dead. Well, we now have photographs of him on the autopsy table, and I can't imagine how many times he's been shot. Here's one he's shot once on the left side of the chest, once on the right side of the chest. He appears to have a bullet hole in the arm. Here's another. You can see an injury at the roof. There's another bullet hole in the back, it appears. Here's a closer up of the injury to the skull. Here are multiple wounds in the back. I mean, the guy was even shot in the back. I see what appear to be three gunshots in the back. Here are multiple additional gunshots. I mean, this is grotesque. Absolutely grotesque. I got these from Oli Domagard. We're pursuing this. I've asked a medical expert of my acquaintance to tell me how many times he was shot. This is a complete disgrace. And it's only also observed, by the way, this does not appear to be a morgue. Look at the background. It's very strange. There's shelving there and all kinds of miscellaneous stuff. It's not a sanitized area. It looks completely inappropriate and ad hoc. Very, very disturbing. Well, there's going to be a protest for the Sandy Hook event uh, organized by Jerry Lafreniere on the 14th. You can go to his website. Go check out International Bureau of False Flag Investigations that he's created online. This is a very good guy. He has given me very important information about Sandy Hook that I will be publishing on the occasion of the observance on the 14th. Uh, Here's something you all ought to find very disturbing. In one of my many blogs, the following report showed up by Anonymous, June 22nd, 2017, at 8.56 p.m. In November 2012, on the PBS show Greater Boston, hosted then by Emily Rooney, daughter of Andy, had as a guest the mayor of Boston, Thomas Menino. The topic was gun control. And Menino essentially bragged that he was good friends with then-Vice President Joe Biden, who had called him and told Menino that by January 2013, gun control in the U.S. would be a done deal. Rudy asked how or what could change for legislation to pass so quickly. Menino wouldn't say, but that Biden assured him something would happen to bring it about. So I kept that weird interview in mind. Then sure enough, bang, Sandy Hook. And I knew it was an inside job. I mean. Two guys in camo from Connecticut's elite SWAT team on the grounds of the elementary school that morning. Why? And they were both seen running from the scene of the crime. I assume they were there to finish off Lanza if their mind control didn't completely work. Well, that was based on early information. We now know the school was closed by 2008. It was loaded with asbestos and other biohazards. There were no students there. 
Uh, and there are multiple ways you can prove it. And we have done it again and again and again. And here's a very delightful uh, song by, by uh, Rick Shattuck entitled Sandy Hook is Conning New Town to the tune of uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It's a really a brilliant little piece. And I would play it had we only enough time. I want to recognize the man in the image is William Shamley, who is a brilliant guy, very dedicated, who died uh, about a month ago. I wish I knew exactly why. He'd been stirring up a lot of waves in in Connecticut where he resided, including bringing a trillion-dollar lawsuit against the mainstream media for their propaganda on behalf of Sandy Hook, which I translate into participation in theft by deception, fraud and theft by deception. It led to donations to the Sandy Hook families between 27 and $130 million, divided by 26 families. That's over a million bucks apiece. You can find it online. Go to Sandy Hook False Flag Protest, hosted by the International Bureau of False Flag Investigations. If there's any way you can participate, that would be great. Let Jerry know you appreciate his efforts. There will be more forthcoming about Sandy Hook, but we're doing a pretty good job of dispatching it here. The fact that Lenny has withdrawn his lawsuit and hopefully James Tracy will prevail in his are further promising signs. But there is more and more proof forthcoming. Every time we turn around, we find what is the case with a true hypothesis You get further confirmation, more evidence, even from unexpected sources or points of view. I look forward to filling in more on the next opportunity we have to converse about Sandy Hook. Meanwhile, this is Jim Fetzer, your host uh, on The Raw Deal, thanking you all for listening and and wishing you a great uh, forthcoming weekend. And thanks for all of those who have sent me their birthday greetings, which I profoundly appreciate. I only regret that Donald Trump had to declare Jerusalem the capital of Israel on my 77th birthday. Thanks. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman, for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com.